It is good to be together on this Labor Day weekend. I was um, remarking in, my, in the last service, you know, Labor Day, we, I don't know what we celebrate, labor, apparently. But as followers of Jesus, we worship him because he's done the work. We don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to earn his favor. We don't have to earn forgiveness. We couldn't even if we tried. We only can receive what he offers by grace, and that's why we come together to worship him. And as Paige mentioned a minute ago, we're going to start a new little mini-series before we launch into our fall series. Before we do that, though, I just want to speak to those of you who are members of this church. If Chapel Street Church is your home and you're a member of the church, um, next weekend, next Sunday, is our annual church meeting. I know you probably all marked your calendars because everybody loves a good church meeting. You've been waiting for the church meeting. You can't wait to attend the church meeting. I'm sure that's true for all of you. Um, but in our church annual meeting, we celebrate the year behind. We look back at what God has done. We look ahead to where we're going to go. And for those of you that are members, anybody's welcome to attend. It'll be right here after the service next weekend, next Sunday. But if you're a member, we really need you to play your part. Because you're a, if you're a member, you have a responsibility and you have to vote on the annual budget which we, our executive council was approved, will submit for uh, approval by the membership, and on the executive council, our church board members, as well as a number of other items. So please be there if, you, if you're a member and vote. If you can't be there, you can vote online, give your proxy to another person or to the executive council so that any items come up, we can deal with those. We really can't function as a church unless the members play their part. So I'm encouraging you, if you're a member, make plans to be there. I think it'll be worth your time. And any of you, even if you're getting to know us, can come and hear more about who we are as a church at that meeting. Okay, we're going to jump into a series for two weeks on, uh, we, we called it our vision, but it, we talk often at Chapel Street about what the church is supposed to do in the world, what our mission is. We'll do that next week. This week, I want to talk to you about what the church is. Actually, what is the church? My wife and I recently returned from two weeks in the United Kingdom. Uh, we were marked as we flew over there uh, that we'd never been away for two weeks, just the two of us anywhere, including our honeymoon and 29 years of marriage. So it was a great treat. We had an amazing and an incredible time. Uh, we've stayed in the Cotswolds. Anybody know what the Cotswolds are? Yeah, a few of you. Cot is the old English word for sheep pen. Wool, the old English word for the rolling hills. So the sheep pens on the rolling hills. If you've ever seen a picture of the idyllic English countryside with sheep and hills and rivers and streams, that's the Cotswolds. We spent several days there touring these little villages lost in time and then several days in the Lake District. Then we flew to Dublin, Ireland to watch my nephew play for Northwestern against Nebraska in Dublin Stadium, which was super fun. I know that sounds crazy, but for whatever reason, they played in Dublin. It was maybe 2,000 Northwestern fans 12,000 Nebraska fans and 20,000 drunk Irishmen, and that was the game, <laughs> but we had a lot of fun. Then we came home uh, to be with all of you. Well, one of the things that we love to do when we were on this trip is to visit little village churches. Uh, I serve in a church. I'm a pastor, obviously. I love churches. I love the structure of churches, the history of churches, the people of churches, and so we visit these little villages in the Cotswolds, and every village has a church. Every village is built around a church. And so I love to go into these churches, and they're all open to the public, and some of them still have services going on, but mostly they're tourist attractions now. You'll see an image here of my wife and I outside of a village church in the churchyard in a village called Upper Slaughter. Sounds rather ominous, slaughter. It's just from the old English word slow, which means the wetlands, so the upper wetlands. Tiny little village. All the villages in the Cotswolds, are, the cottages are made of this honey-colored stone, which is native to the area. Look, it's, it's like it's out of a movie scene, these little villages lost in time. And this is the little churchyard there. The next image here is my favorite moment of the trip. Um, if you've ever, you ever have moments in your life where it's like you just want to take a snapshot of this moment and freeze it and relive it because it was just so perfect? This is one of those days. We were driving to a little village called uh, Snows Hill outside the town of Broadway in, uh, in rural England and came across this little church, St. Edinburgh's Church. Ever heard of it? No, I didn't think so. Uh, it's named after the great-granddaughter of Alfred the Great, the first Saxon king of England. 
And it's just this little country church. It's over a thousand year old. The original part of it is over uh, 1,100 years old. It, was a, it had rained in the morning. The clouds were lifting. So the sun was shining, but it wasn't hot. There was a breeze blowing, but it wasn't cold. And we're, my, we're in this churchyard. And, this, and it's just, it was just this picture-perfect moment. Gorgeous, ancient church. Quiet. Sheep on the hillside. I could have sat on the backside of that church in a little bench with a book and been happy for the rest of my life. But I had to come back here to all of you. <laughs> anyway. Um, this church, uh, my favorite little one we visited. We also drove to the city of Bath, Bath, England, in the, in the southwestern part of England near, near the Welsh border. Incredible, beautiful city, lots of history there. And we visited the Bath Abbey. You'll see the next picture, a massive cathedral in the background there. Visited the Bath Abbey. Gorgeous stained glass, takes your breath away. One of the best features was the ceiling in the nave, the main part of the church, were these uh, stone pillars that were carved out of stone to look like the trees of heaven interlacing at the top. It was just stunning. And you can walk in and scan a QR code and get a little audio bit in your ear and it'll walk you around the church and tell you who's buried in what crypt and what part of the church dates to what, you know, in terms of the architecture and all the history about it, literature, all that. And there were hundreds of people inside this massive cathedral doing exactly that, touring it, learning about the history. Off to the side, in one of the alcoves, was this little table set up and two men at the table. And they had a sign that said, do you want to know why this church was originally built? Why this magnificent church was originally built? What its purpose was? And uh, then they were given away New Testament, copies of the New Testament and gospel tracts. And nobody was going to that table. Hundreds of people milling around in this church, looking at the architecture, hearing about the history. Nobody going to hear about why it was originally built. Because as glorious as the architecture and stonework was, I don't think that originally they built it so that people a thousand years later would come and say, wow, look at that ceiling. It was built for the glory of God, for his eternal truth. I walked over to them, and they're like, sweet, somebody's coming to get a Bible. And I'm like, hey, I'm a pastor from America. They're like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> but we talked a little bit, and I tried to encourage them in their work. And I started thinking about that a lot on our trip and on the way back and since. A church in a little village, hundreds of them, built as the center of village life. In fact, the cottage is built around the church, the geographical and spiritual center of village life. A massive cathedral built to the glory of God, and nobody seems to be interested in why it was originally built, what, what it was there for, what its purpose was. And I started thinking about what it relates, how that relates to us at the church today. Many are asking the question, why do we need the church? Why do we need the church? You know, it's no secret that in the post-COVID world, church attendance and engagement is on the decline. But that's not a new phenomenon. The cultural pandemic and crisis we've been through only has served to accelerate what was already true. For over a decade, church attendance and engagement in America has been in decline. 62% of people in America identify as a Christian, down from 75% less than 10 years ago. Now, I don't believe that those 62% are all sold-out disciples of Jesus, Nevertheless, it's, it's shrinking those who even identify as a church-going Christian. And there's lots of debate about why this is. The secularization of our culture, the uh, political ideology and division, the church aligning itself with politics is turning people off, the moral failures of pastors and people in spiritual leadership, which are happening repeatedly, causing a great crisis of trust in spiritual authority, the pandemic fallout and consequences, and people are studying this and writing about it. But in order to answer why we need the church, we have to answer a prior question. What is the church? If we're going to talk about why we need it, what is it, this thing we call the church? 
I said I like to visit churches, but I'm talking about the buildings. Is that what a church is? It might sound like an obvious question, but it's one worth pondering. And I want to begin by answering what the church is not. What the church is not. First of all, I'll draw some images that I hope will be helpful in your, to memorize and remember what we're talking about. If not, it's just one for me to draw. What the church is not. First of all, related to our trip to England, what the church is not. The church is not a monument. I don't know how to draw the Washington Monument, so that's what you get. The church is not a monument, meaning, meaning the church is not just built as a, as a monument to past events. Sometimes churches are named for people, St. Edinburgh's Church, right? St. Edward, St. Peter's, sometimes they, they commemorate certain things in history, and that's nothing wrong with that. But the church, Jesus, when he invented the church, when he said, I will build my church, his goal was not some relic to the past that we visit and say, oh yeah, I remember what happened long ago. That's not what we do when we gather as the church. Similarly, the church is not meant to be a museum, meaning it's not a, a place where ancient artifacts are. When we were in Dublin, we visited Christ Cathedral in Dublin, a massive, it covers a couple of city blocks, beautiful, incredible uh, building and structure, and below is the crypt, which you can go into, and down in the crypt, they have all these artifacts, brass uh, and gold uh, pulpits, um, all kinds of relics of the past. But one of the funniest things was they have a mummified cat and mouse that were found in the pipe organs of the church, perfectly preserved. You can even see the, the 300-year-old whiskers of the cat. They have them in a glass case, like, like a little Tom and Jerry moment caught, caught in, and they, and they put it on display. Well, the church, that's interesting and cool, but it's not where the church is. Let's go to this building and see these relics of the past, explore all the artifacts. Well, that's as it relates to my experience in, in England. We don't have as much of that going on here because our country is just not that old. But what would we say the church is not in our culture? You know, most of those churches in England, they're open to the public. A few of them still have services. But most of the visitors there are there for, because it's a monument or a museum. What about in, in suburban America? Next slide here, I'll draw this. The church is not a country club. What I mean by this is the church is not it's not a, a club you join where you pay your dues and it provides services for entertainment and leisure for your family. I like these people. We get together. We enjoy each other. And there's lots of good programs. And it's great. It's a great time. Many people think of the church that way, but that's not what it's intended to be. Certainly not what Jesus had in mind. Also, the church is not a concert. Nothing wrong with going to concerts, but the church is not a show that you attend or a performance. Meaning, you don't go to church and say, what, what an inspiring talk. I love the music, that was so great, can't wait till the show next week, or you know, next month when we're in, back in town. That's not, the, that's not the church. We can keep going about the church is not. It's not a building, it's not a political party, it's not a corporation or a business. The church is a movement of God's spirit in God's people for his purpose and glory in the world. From the beginning, God said, I'm gonna give you my spirit, those of you that belong to me, that are any part of his family, a movement of God's spirit in God's people for God's purpose and glory in the world. That's what the church is intended to be. And I want to give you six reasons why we need the church. And I'm not just referring to Chapel Street Church, but the church, the, the people that belong to Jesus in the world. Six theological truths, reasons why the church matters to answer that question, why do we need it? First, the church is God's family. 
for all of our flaws and failures, and there are many, the church is God's family, the family of God. Now, all human beings are made in the image of God and therefore have dignity and worth, and we should treat them as such. But not all human beings are part of the family of God. You are born into this, the human race by being born biologically, physically. You become part of the family of God by being born again. 1 Peter 1.3, we have this hope. We are born again into a living hope. So we come into God's family by spiritual adoption, by receiving the grace and forgiveness that he offers through his death and resurrection. That's why we can call each other brother and sister. That's why he calls us sons and daughters. This 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This phrase, household of God, is an important one. It's the Greek word oikos. Anybody eat oikos yogurt? Same Greek word. It means household of God, which is the church of the living God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul puts it this way. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, same word, of God, meaning family members. You belong to him. This has been God's desire from the beginning. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, God, we're told that God chose us before the foundation of the world to be his sons and daughters. You could make the argument, and I think it's biblical, that the reason God created all that exists is for the church, his glory in the church. Think about it. If a church is God's family, what was he doing? He made everything that exists. Why? Because he's bored. No. The crown of his creation was Adam and Eve, man and woman, made in his image, crowned with glory and honor, to be his children, living in his world, to relate to him by faith. And we screwed that up through sin, and we still do. And he begins again by calling Abraham to follow him and creating a people, the Israelites, out of which he would send a deliverer, a redeemer, Jesus. All of this, why? To, to have a people to call his own, his family, that would trust him by faith. That's why God created from the beginning, from the garden to the Old Testament to the New to right down to today. Second, Jesus died for the church. Jesus Christ died for, as if we need another reason, Right? Why do we need the church? He died for it. He did not die for the United States of America. I know you know that theologically, but I think we have to keep repeating that. Jesus did not die for the USA. He did not die for Ukraine or Russia or the UK, for that matter, as much as I enjoyed touring it. And there are people who confuse this. There is no chosen human nation. There's the people of God on earth. He didn't die for any human institution for that matter. No political party, no business. He died for his bride, the church. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This phrase, and gave himself up for her, is, is worth thinking about for a minute. Married men in here, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And the model of that, well, how did he love the church? He gave himself for her. Well, how did he do that? He died. So are you willing to die? for your? And it doesn't mean jump in front of a train for her. You, hopefully you'd do that. Take a bullet for her. It means die to your need to be first. Die to your desire to have your way. To put her first, second only to Christ. This is the model Jesus gives. 
He loves his bride so much he would relinquish his position in heaven, empty himself, make himself nothing, take on the nature of a servant, become obedient to death, even death on a cross, Philippians tells us. And then he tells us why. That he, Jesus, might sanctify her, the church, us, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus desires to die for the church, to redeem his bride, and present her to himself one day perfect, spotless. And we think, well, we're far from that today. That's true. But someday, if you read the book of Revelation in chapter 5, in chapter 12, in chapter 19, you get these pictures of what we will be. Spotless before the throne. Worshiping the Lamb of God on the throne. When I was a kid, I used to think, man, heaven sounds so boring. Just singing and singing forever and ever for all eternity. Is that what it is? No. Singing praises, by the way, we're all going to sound amazing in heaven, is only one part of what it means to worship God. It means the people of God coming together to give him glory for all eternity. He died for this. To call you into his family. And by the way, what that means, a practical implication As a follower of Jesus, a member of God's family, you have more in common with a Christian in Iran than you do with a Republican who lives down the street who rejects Jesus, or Democrat for that matter. We align and identify around the wrong stuff in this culture. That's your brother or sister, though you've never met them. Third, through the church, God's wisdom is revealed in heaven and on earth. You might be thinking, wait a second, isn't God's wisdom revealed in his word? Yes, it is. And you can certainly read God's word on your own and have his wisdom. He can speak to you through it. My friend, Pastor John Kelly, who's preached here before, tells the story about his conversion in a prison cell, reading the gospel on his own. Uh, He was converted. But one of the primary ways the world sees the wisdom of God revealed in his word is through a community of faith, a church who believes and obeys it. Leslie Newbegin wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Wrote it in the 1980s, but it's profoundly relevant today. He writes this, The only effective hermeneutic of the gospel is the life of a church which truly believes it. Hermeneutic just means interpretation. How will the world interpret what, it, what this means and what it looks like in real life? The best way is in a group of Christians called a church who really believe it and who hold each other to obey it. That's the best apologetic. God reveals his wisdom. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. So that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. God's plan before the foundation of the world was to reveal his wisdom that he he performed in his son Jesus on the cross through the church. That his wisdom would be made known. What that means is when you join a group like Rooted or a, a men's group or a women's Bible study, when you get involved in community and you open God's word together and you pray for each other and you confess sin when you screw up and you urge each other to live more obedient to God and you show up for when you're in crisis for one another, but the word becomes central in your life and community. I, I know what it feels like. It feels like when we talk about these opportunities, that's a program for me to select from if I have time. Our intent is to provide an opportunity for this, for God's people to come together around his word and for his wisdom to be on display. 
I was talking to a man uh, in the lobby who visited the Czech Republic, uh, one of our missionaries there, to rehab homes for Ukrainian refugees. And he said that one of the missionaries we support in the Czech said this, it's very rare for Czech people to see a Christian. It's almost unheard of to see a group of Christians. The church is so small there. To see a group of Christians serving together, praying together, loving one another is the greatest witness. Well, that's true in America as well. Through the church, God's wisdom is made known. I often hear people say things like, well, if the church would just be the church. And what they usually mean by that, if the church would do what I think they should do and say what I think they should say. And I understand that. And there is certainly a gap between our experience of the church and what God intends. But I'm trying to give you a sense of what God intends, the significance of what it means to be the church. Fourth, the church is eternal. The church is eternal. Think about this for a minute. There's no end to the people of God. Now, there will be an end to Chapel Street Church. There was an end to St. Edinburgh's Church and to the Bath Abbey. Local churches have life cycles. They come to an end. But the church in the world, God's mission and his people in the world, has no end. Nations have ends. Cultures have ends. Civilizations have ends. Businesses, corporations have ends. Can you think of anything else in all of life that has no end? The church is eternal. It will never come to an end. Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21. Now to him, Jesus, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory and in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you read the old King James, it says, world without end. Amen. God's intent and design and purpose is that his glory would be on display in his church forever. Everything else has an end. Some of you are jumping back into school a couple weeks in now. It comes to an end. Some of you are like, praise the Lord, right? It does. Some of you are in the middle of your school activities, band and sports. Great, wonderful. My kids played sports in high school. I love watching them. That's all over with. They have joined the largest fraternity in all of sports, those of us who used to play. Everybody joins it eventually, right? It comes to an end. Enjoy it. Soak it up, whatever you're involved in. But everything comes to an end. Not the church. It will never end. And in addition to that, number five, Jesus said he promised the church will prevail. It will not fail. Can you think of anything else in life that you can say that about? Families fail, governments fail, corporations fail, businesses fail, economies fail, people fail. You might be thinking, I've been a part of the churches that have failed me. Fair enough. There are human expressions of the church that get it wrong. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By the way, the context of this is Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say one of the prophets. They don't really know, but there's a lot of buzz about you, Jesus. And then Jesus makes it personal. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, being Peter, speaks up and answers. Sometimes he gets it right, sometimes he gets it wrong. This is one of the times he gets it right. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, bingo. That's not what the Greek means, actually. But he says, you know, he says exactly right. 
I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. Not on Peter, but on what he just said. You are the Christ. I'm going to build my church. Jesus has, makes two promises that are crystal clear. One, he will build his church. Two, it will not fail. And I often point this out. Maybe you've heard me do this before. It's worth doing again. In this little image that Jesus gives us here, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Who has the gates? Who has the gates? I know you don't want to say the word H-E-double hockey sticks out loud in church, right? But the gates of? It's okay, you can say it. The gates of hell. hell. Don't we often think of heaven as the gated community? And the church as the gated community? We're going to close up our gates, keep all the good, holy people in, all the bad, sinner, evil people out, and hang on till heaven. That's not God's image of the church. The church is not a gated community where we hide away from the world. The church is meant to be knocking down gates. If the gates will not prevail, that means that something's trying to knock them down or open them. The point he's making is there are forces of darkness and evil and injustice and oppression in the world. That's what the gates of hell symbolizes. But the church will advance against them. And it is, though it doesn't always show up on your newsfeed. It's happening all over the world. Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus is not in the business of building my reputation, the reputation of Chapel Street Church. He's in the business of building his church. And it's possible, in fact, sadly, it happens more frequently than it ought to, for a local church to be about building themselves and their kingdom, not his. We should always I, I pray against that. You should pray for that as well. Pray for us and with us that we're aligning with what he's doing. Because if we are, it won't fail. Ultimately speaking, I will build my church. You know, when you stop and think about that for a minute, that means that the church is the only organization in the world that has the resources to deal with global problems. Some of you might think, wait, 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 time out. I don't just mean a local expression. I mean the body of Christ, given the eternal truth of God and his spirit, is the only group that has the resources to deal with what's wrong with the world. No nation has that. No corporation has enough. Only the church. You know there's 2.2 billion Christians in the world today? 2.2 billion people that identify as a follower of Jesus. That's more than India and China combined. What if 2.2 billion people were on mission, committed to a local body, obeying the word of God? Only the church has the spiritual resources to deal with what's really wrong in the world today. And it's crucial that we understand that. We put our hope in the wrong places. We look for solutions in the wrong places. Number six. The church is Jesus' witness in the world. The church is Jesus' witness in the world. God has one plan to make his gospel known. Plan A, there's no plan B. And I, like you, probably look around sometimes and think, really, Jesus, this is the best you can come up with, us? Can't you do, we're the raw material he has to work with. We are his plan to make his truth known in the world. And do you know how, how many of you know how many Christians there were when the church began? How many followers of Jesus on the planet were there when the first church began? Anybody know? 120. About this middle section, right? On the planet, waiting in an upper room because Jesus told them to wait. 
for the Holy Spirit that would come. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We'll look at this more in detail next week. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. And then he says, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and at the end of the earth. Now, if you've studied this, you know that's like concentric circles. Jerusalem, it begins to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You ever watch like those mo- apocalyptic movie about the end? Of- when I was a kid, it was war games, right? There's, there's ground zero where it begins and then it radiates out uh, from there. Or a-, or a pandemic. Where's ground zero for where the virus started? We we're trying to study those things, right? And it's always like, boom. Well, think of that in a positive sense. God sends his spirit to 120 followers of Jesus who don't amount to much in the world. And it has been radiating out from there ever since. By the way, there's no global center of Christianity. There's no, there's no place where, well, this is the global center. It's not Rome. It's not Jerusalem. Because it's, it's, a, it's a movement of God's spirit in God's people for God's glory and purpose in the world. There's a global center of Islam. There's a global center of Hinduism and Buddhism, but not Christianity. The church is to be his witnesses in the world. We'll talk in detail next week about what that means to be his witnesses. He's given us his spirit to be his witnesses. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, it's easy to read this as individuals, like I'm an individual ambassador, that's true. But this is a plural. We, God is making his appeal through us. So when it says, we, y'all, are ambassadors for Christ. The church, we are, when you travel to a foreign country and you see a U.S. embassy, what is that? It's a little patch of U.S. soil in a foreign country. A little outpost. You cross over that embassy border, you're on U.S. soil, U.S. territory. And the ambassador there is a, is a citizen of the United States who represents the interests, values, and mission of the U.S. in another nation. That's what the church is. We hold a different passport, friends. We're citizens of a different nation, a different country, a different kingdom. And God sends us into the world. We live in the world. We care about the world. We want the world to be a better place, but we have a different allegiance. We represent different values, different interests, different mission. The church is meant to be like a little patch of heaven in the world. Where does the world look to know, well, what's the kingdom of God like? What what is this whole thing about? It's meant to be the church. I want, you, I want you, before we get to our mission next week and our vision, some specifics for the Neighborhood Church vision, I want you to walk out of here with a heightened sense of the weight of what it means to be part of the church. It is the greatest privilege in life to say, I belong to Jesus. I've been adopted as his daughter, as his son. I'm part of his family. I'm part of the church. It's the greatest identity marker we could possibly have above all others. I belong to him. You don't deserve it. You certainly can't earn it. But he invites you into it. The church, which will never end, which will never fail, which is his family, for which he died, through which he's making his wisdom known, his witness in the world. What what better thing to give your life to? God forgive us for thinking it's something I attend when it's convenient. Or watch when I remember, and or go to when I have time. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you at all. I just want us to understand, what is this? Why does the church matter? The church matters because it's God's family, because he died for it. 
because he's making his wisdom known through it. It will never fail. It will never end. And we are his witnesses in the world. What else can you say that about in life? Only the church. Praise God for his church and that we get to be part of it. We're going to wrap up by coming to the table of the Lord. And communion often is a solitary thing, a personal thing, and certainly as you take bread and cup together as we do that, you should and must remember that Christ died for your sins to forgive and wash you clean. But I want you to remember we also do this in community. We call it communion. It is a communal thing. We are all adopted individually into his family, but we together as his sons and daughters, his brothers and sisters, remember who he is and what he's done. And you don't have to be a member of Chapel Street Church. It's maybe your first time here. If you know the Lord Jesus as your forgiver, as your Savior, as the Lord of your life, and you are welcome to take communion together with us because we're part of his family. Let's peel off that top layer and take the bread in your hands, and I'll remind you what the Scripture teaches, that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and he passed it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body. It is given for you. Eat this and remember him. And after they'd eaten, Jesus poured out a cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And the Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we together proclaim the truth of his death and resurrection until he returns. Let's do that together. Amen. Before the benediction and you go your way, I just want to invite those of you that are new, if you're new to Chapel Street Church, to connect with us right out back in the lobby there. Of course, if you're a member, you can pick up information in the, in the lobby as you leave. If you're in need of prayer for any reason, every week there are people in the prayer team in a prayer room right back there in the glass room that would love to meet with you, to encourage you, to pray with you and for you. Feel free to stop by and be prayed for and prayed with. Now receive the benediction from Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine, to him be glory and honor in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.